three, two, one. The vision and prize Fannie Lou Hamer had her eyes on still eludes us nearly 60 years later. The fact that among the pantheon of anti-racist leaders, virtually all fit into the traditional great men theory of history, and she is so little known, the fact that she is so little known demonstrates her relevance then and now to America's as yet still merely aspirational future. Everybody knows of Martin Luther King, and most of us know of Malcolm X, and thanks to the recent hit movie Judas and the Black Messiah, the name Fred Hampton is also there. But what about Fannie Lou Hamer? In a new book, Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer, a long overdue spotlight is shined on this amazing woman who grew up in real poverty in Mississippi, toiling in the cotton fields as a young girl on the same lands her ancestors plowed, planted, and harvested, who became an electrifying presence when she walked onto stages across the country during the civil rights movements of the 60s and 70s, most notably at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. At that riveting moment, she stood up to influential civil rights leaders who tried to dismiss her because she was female, poor, and uneducated. Her powerful voice and song and speeches inspired millions to stand up and speak out against inequality. And yet she remains virtually unknown today beyond academia. Coming in the wake of George Floyd and the blatantly racist and sexist president, this book couldn't be timelier. Hamer's struggles and her fight for the right to vote ties her to current events and powerful dynamics still emerging of course, including Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movements. Fannie Lou Hamer's legacy stirs in the work of activist Stacey Abrams and other men and women demanding, demanding equality, justice, and access to the ballot. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Walk With Me author Dr. Kate Clifford Larson. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Kate Clifford Larson has written Bound for the Promised Land, Harriet Tubman, Portrait of an American Hero, Rosemary, the Hidden Kennedy Daughter, and The Assassin's Accomplice, Mary Surratt and the Plot to Kill Abraham Lincoln. She has consulted on feature film scripts, documentaries, museum exhibits, public history initiatives, and numerous publications and appeared on CBS Sunday Morning, the BBC, PBS, C-SPAN, and NPR. Larson is currently a Brandeis Women's Studies Research Center scholar. Her new book, Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer, is out now from Oxford University Press. And her book starts to address the deficit created by the great men of history focus. Well, again, thanks for being with us. I asked a good friend recently who's African-American if he'd heard of Fannie Lou Hamer. He said it sounded vaguely familiar, but he'd heard his parents talk about her. I wonder if, among the many barriers she faced in her life, the fact that our civil rights history, such that it is, is dominated by well-educated men, may have been a factor in the energy that motivated her. And in addressing that question, perhaps this is a place to tell the listeners about her early life and what it was like to be a young girl in the cotton fields. I know I packed a lot into that. That's my style. What can I tell you? <laughs> That is a lot to pack into it. Um, well, first of all, I think uh, the fact that the movement in the 1950s and 60s was dominated by 
uh, well-educated men. Um, I'm not sure that that was a motivation for Hamer to step forward. There were circumstances in her life that propelled her forward, and she made choices to keep moving forward. She did observe, though, that the men were often the ones that were up on the stage that had the speaking moments. Yes. And um, she, so in her, early in her civil rights uh, career, she often was asked to come up and sing rather than give speeches. Oh but that changed quickly once people heard her speak. And, um, you know, she just made her way. Uh, she was a force of nature, so she just made her way through that crowd of elite men. Wow. It was remarkable. Yeah, remarkable. And the uh, the the early days she had in the cotton fields. I mean, my mm. goodness, it's amazing stuff. Tell us uh, about that. Her early life, you know, her uh, education, her early education, and what happened to that, uh, and and what it was like in those cotton fields. So, you know, understanding Hamer's uh, birth and her life as a child and young adult in those um, cotton fields in Mississippi is really important to understand her as an adult in the civil rights movement. She was born in 1917. She was the 20th child of uh, Jim and Ella Townsend. And the tragedy is um, the the extreme poverty into which she was born, the extreme poverty that sharecroppers, black and white, but particularly black um, sharecroppers and laborers in Mississippi endured, um, had tremendous uh, deadly consequences in the African-American community because of lack of access, lack of income, lack of access to health care. So the the survival rate for black children was much lower than it was for white children. And in fact, seven of Hamer's siblings died before she was even born. And I believe that four of them were babies in the four years before she was born. So the struggles that that family faced, the tragedy is just incredible. So when Hamer was born and she survived, you know, her mother doted on her. She you know, uh-huh. just protected her. She was a fierce mother. And um, so Hamer grew up in that environment with a fierce mother and a very religious family. Mm. And they endured the poverty and um, the lack of food. Often her mother would scrape around and get, you know, dandelion greens and things to cook so that they could eat. So, um, and then they endured the violence of Mississippi. Mississippi was the most violent state in the nation. It has the uh, terrible reputation of having the most uh, lynchings in the country. Mm. And um, so the subjugation, the discrimination, the violence against uh, black people was a, a fact of life in Hamer's world. And she grew up there, but she also grew up with great joy and this large family and her faith, her church, her community. And she was a gifted child and recognized mm. for that. Mm-hmm. So she was elevated in the community. Um, sharecroppers, uh, the children generally went to school maybe three or four months out of the year, and mm. that was intermittent. And um, the the tools and the resources in black schools were minimal. They were not equitably funded like white schools. They were segregated. But Hamer was such a bright little child. She just was a voracious reader, and she was able to learn. But she had to leave school at sixth grade to help her parents in the fields pick cotton so they could survive. So that was her experience. And yet we had a 
president who didn't read anything. Yeah, <laughs> she remarkable? read a lot. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. And in the cotton fields, when she was a young girl, she, she raised her voice in that job. Was she not afraid of the bosses? Tell us about that. What did that suggest for her future? Oh, so she, you know, she was, um, she did speak out in the fields out of earshot of the plantation bosses. Yeah, that's good. Um, because she saw the inequities. They worked so hard and they ended up with nothing while uh, while the white plantation owner lived in homes with, you know, running water and bathrooms, bathrooms for their pets, you know, showers for their pets. And they lived in shacks with no running water and they had to go to outhouses to go to the bathroom. So, um, you know, she just saw the inequities and it irritated her. So she found ways... Um, as she grew into teenagehood and adulthood to exact some sort of um, prizes for herself by making, watching the white bosses, figuring out when they were cheating the sharecroppers, because that was very common, oh, yeah. you know, underweighing the cotton that they picked so they pay them less. Well, Fannie Lou figured out how to make sure that they weighed it correctly without them understanding. She had done things to correct those um, terrible things that the the bosses had done. And so she, you know, she just found her way to do something for herself and the people around her. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough because the subjugation and discrimination was just so debilitating. And um, it had serious consequences, death, health issues, um, poverty, lack of education, and they had no right to vote. They could not vote. No, of course not. Of course not. Uh, and just for for clarification, we hear the term sharecroppers. It's so, it's something in the past. I think most people don't know what it is. What is a sharecropper? So sharecropping is a system that actually emerged after the Civil War and slavery was no longer allowed. And so, um, uh, peop, uh, black and white workers could. Um, sort of, they shared, they worked on a plantation owned generally by a white person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they would work the, the land, so many acres, and when the crops came in, they would share in the profits of those crops. However, <laughs> the white plantation owners generally exacted costs out of that, like the cost of the seed and the animals that were used to plow and all the equipment and, you know, rents. And um, oftentimes sharecroppers were forced to buy their goods at a plantation store that was run by the white owner and they jacked up all the prices. So at the end of the year, when they would kind of come to selling the crop and and all of that, oftentimes sharecroppers ended up with very little money for a year's worth of work. Sometimes, in some places, they owed the white plantation owner money, so they would be trapped in this perpetual state of bondage, actually. So, terrible system. Very terrible system. Bondage, yes. The title of your first chapter is Another Kind of Slavery, which reminds me of a shockingly revelatory book I, uh, whose author I interviewed many years ago. The book is Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman. It's right. nearly universally understood or believed that slavery ended with the Lincoln presidency. Is is that belief wrong? Well, uh, on that <laughs> landscape in Mississippi and other southern states, uh, the the continuation of, the, of slavery... Um, just moved into, and it was called something else, sharecropping. Uh, it was just terrible, yeah. Well, it worked out well for the uh, white owners. 
Yeah. A- and the, um, the national and international image of Mississippi is, shall we say, unique. The state is in the news today in 2021 because of a law which seriously endangers reproductive rights, which will soon be heard in the Supreme Court. It could destroy Roe versus Wade, something that's a bit important to women and men as well. It would be nice to think Mississippi had evolved since the days when Fannie Lou Hamer was a young girl. Frankly, I remain dubious. And what, what was it like the effects of the Great Depression on black people of the region. We, you know, my, my, he, she was born in 1917, so she uh, experienced it. And how did that, the effects of the Great Depression, affect the level of violent racism? So it continued. Um, so everyone suffered during the Depression, of course, but um, sharecroppers and African American laborers in Mississippi suffered horribly. And, um, you know, the jobs started disappearing. People lost their homes. They were, they were evicted from their cabins, their sharecropping cabins. Um, many, uh, or as many as could and wanted to, uh, African Americans migrated out of Mississippi because it was so horrible. And, um, for the, for Hamer and her family, they were able to stay on the plantation they were working on. But it was, you know, day by day, they were hungry. And in the winter, they were cold. And, um, it was a, a difficult experience. Um, Hamer, uh, likes other Mississippians, um, uh, her family made bootleg liquor, which helped them, you know, earn a little extra money. Mississippi had been a dry state way before the, right. the prohibition had been passed. Um, but making liquor at home was allowed, and then it kind of just seeped into selling and um and in that area, there were it, it, it was so you know the price of cotton just plummeted because of the depression, and just people couldn't eat. It was horrible. Um, but there were other things that came out of that region, and I'm, I think the Mississippi blues is yes. something that people don't understand. And that the birthplace of the Delta Blues yes. was about six miles from where Fannie Lou Hamer lived and worked, and so in those fields. You could hear the old um, work songs, the call and response songs, and blues and spirituals. So there was music everywhere. And when you hear Hamer sing, and I encourage your listeners to go on YouTube and, and you can listen to some of the tapes of her singing, you can hear that mixture of all of those those um, African-American traditions um, in her voice, when whether she's singing um, a freedom song from the civil rights movement or spiritual, you hear that blues, that moaning, that you know, that real blues yeah. uh, sensibility. It's it's quite incredible. Yeah, and you say she she grew up in a blues filled life, and I'll tell you, yeah. you know, the world has many many different impressions of the United States of America. One thing I think the world loves is our culture, the Delta blues in particular. <laughs> and and that was part of the identity there and something uh, I think all America could be proud of, that particular cultural aspect of it. And as you describe this history, I'll tell you, I can see why people on the, the hard right are against learning history, the so-called critical race theory. Of course they are, because they don't want to face this stuff. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is Dr. Kate Clifford Larson, who's got a brand new book called Walk With Me, and it's about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, somebody who deserves 
a lot more awareness than is currently the case, and it may be the case. Tell us about your uh, research on this. It must have been fascinating to to dig into this stuff, and uh, tell us about that process, please. Oh, it was incredible. First of all, it is very hard history, really hard history, and that's what we need to face and confront Absolutely. and have dialogue about and um, you know expose it for what it was. But the research was incredible. Um, um, you know, there's a lot written about Mississippi during that time period, you know, the, from the Civil War on. And so that there's rich, rich documentation and rich um, secondary sources that I could rely on. And as far as Hamer's life is concerned, as she became an adult and about her family, I needed to go into primary sources. I needed to go into those government records, the, the census records and tax records and things like that to follow her family and and what happened to them. And then um, through the World War II period and beyond, and once the civil rights movement started and the FBI started following her and keeping oh. records on her, I had to access those things. And the FBI records of all the, of the civil rights workers that she worked with. And Mississippi had its own special brand of the FBI called the Sovereignty Commission. Oh. And they kept you know, tabs on civil rights workers who they called communists. Of course. And so their records have been um, released, and that's been very helpful. And then all the records of the civil rights organizations that she interacted with and the NAACP, and uh, many of those documents now have been put together in collections around the country. So, um, and, you know, uh, like White House tapes have been released. You know, I listened to hmm. President Johnson and his uh. telephone conversations because, you know, he taped everything. And, you know, Hamer is talked about on those conversations and the crises that's happening in Mississippi. He talks about that. So uh, the, the research just was so breathtaking to me and so rich and I, I you know we're fortunate that so much of this has been preserved because people cannot deny this history they cannot walk away from it and as far as critical race theory is concerned yes it is critical for us to talk about race absolutely we have to learn our history although one thing i've learned from history is that we never learn from our history because we don't want to see it we don't want to uh, see yeah. it i, I got to ask after the second world war there was what is known as the Great Migration. Why? Why? That, what was that, and why did she not hop on board that train leaving the South? Right. So there had been several great migrations out of the South, um, African Americans leaving for jobs in the North, the industrialized North, and the West. Um, and all those years, some of her relatives did leave, um, but she chose to stay. She stayed with her family and the community that she loved, the church that she loved. And um, after World War II, you know, the world was changing, and we were building this strong nation, and um, Hamer and her family decided to stay there in Mississippi. Um, I, I, you know, I... I it's hard to understand to to endure that yes. that painful poverty existence and not move away and and get to the north and get jobs and and um, be able to have a more decent life. But you know the the pull of family and it was her home place. It was the landscape that she loved, despite of all the discrimination and the violence and the poverty. Um, and she and her husband Pap, 
you yes. know, had a, a nice exist or I shouldn't say nice existence, but they were better off than some sharecroppers because he um, was a mechanic. And not only was he a good farmer, but he also could fix equipment uh, like farm equipment that was um, becoming more and more popular on those uh, cotton fields. Well, we wouldn't have her story if she hadn't stayed to fight. And right. to this day, you know, as I say, the the aspiration of a better America is still off into the future. To this day, medical care is not exactly equally accessible for all. The quality of medical care, hugely uh, different. She grew up, obviously, before even Medicare. In 1960, she went to a doctor for fibroid condition. What happened then proved highly significant. Tell us about that, please. Oh, poor Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, she and Pap had been trying to have children of their own. They adopted two little girls that they were raising, but they wanted to have their own children. And Fannie suffered a couple of miscarriages and two stillbirths. And um, she discovered that she had fibroid tumors that were causing great discomfort. And um, the white do a white doctor in Ruleville, Mississippi, where they lived, uh, Dr. Charles Doro, the son of the mayor of Ruleville, Charles mm. 50 Doro, mm. um, worked at the local hospital, and he told Hamer that he could fix those fibroids, when in fact what he did is he gave her a complete hysterectomy and sterilized her, mm. which is something that mm. happened in Mississippi and other southern states and, and other states to poor, often black, but poor women. And um, there was, it wasn't illegal. So he did that and without her permission. And when she came out of the surgery and discovered that that had been done, it devastated her and sent her in a deep depression. Oh. And through her faith and struggles because she was filled with hate and anger and she couldn't do anything because she was an african-american woman she couldn't stand up to a white doctor she couldn't she couldn't sue him she couldn't do anything so um but she, through her faith and her family she came out of it but it it changed her and i i talk about this in the book she had a rebirth it she set herself on a new path and that led her into um the civil rights movement. And by the way, it, uh, forced sterilization or sterilization without someone's permission was not made illegal until 1973. Yeah. Boy, does that say a lot about our... Oh, my goodness. I, yeah. We've got to face this history. We have to face this history. That's, yeah. Right. And the phrase Freedom Summer, pretty much everybody's heard of that. Re refresh our memories, please. What and when was that? And how did it affect her? Freedom... Yeah. Freedom Summer was 1964. Um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that had been organized in 1960 through the help of Ella Baker, who worked with Martin Luther King and his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and a young man by the name of um, Bob Moses, a uh, great yes. civil rights activist who died recently, yes. and John, young John Lewis, a congressman uh -huh. who also passed away recently. Um, they, that young student, they attracted the energy and the enthusiasm and the commitment of young students. So in 1964, the organization, along with other civil rights organizations, decided to bring young people and volunteers of many ages down to Mississippi and to try to register people to black people to vote mm -hmm. because oh, by 1964 only 
6% of eligible black voters in Mississippi could were registered. And routinely, African Americans were denied the right to register to vote. They had these onerous literacy tests and random nonsense things that they would put black voter uh, registrants through and deny them the right to vote. So this Freedom Summer was about bringing volunteers down to help people to learn how to pass those tests and to draw the attention of the nation to what was going on in Mississippi that um, would not allow, you know, nearly half of its population any sort of representation. My goodness. And, of course, maybe some people remember that uh, in June of 1964, Three of those freedom riders were murdered in Mississippi. So, that you know, obviously there was some incentive for the people who ran the system to, to keep it that way. And they were quite serious about it, to put it mildly. Well, what happened when she tried to register to vote in 1962? So um, that was part of her evolving rebirth. She decided that she'd had enough of the treatment in, in Mississippi. And SNCC um, came yes. to Ruleville and had a meeting at Hammer's Church, William Chapel, and they spoke to about 200 people showed up, which was remarkable because of the fears that people harbored about showing any interest in civil rights or voting rights. And she went that night. She decided that she needed to maybe look into this and try to register to vote. Mm. And when she heard James Bevel and these other civil rights workers talking um, about their rights and also using the Bible and saying, you know, this is a God-given right, you know, this is, this is what you need to do, this, you're entitled to this, it spoke to her. And so she volunteered to go uh, the next week down to Indianola, the county uh, seat for Sunflower County where she lived, and she tried to register to vote. She failed the test. It was a ridiculous test. It was long and everything. Um, and when she got home that night, she was evicted from the plantation. Uh, W.D. Marlowe owned the plantation where she and Pap lived and worked, and he told her, that if she didn't take her registration back, that um, he would evict her. And he, she told him that she went to register for herself, not for him. Right. And he said to her, we're not ready for that in Mississippi. And she was evicted that night. We're not ready for that. Boy, we sure, I, I'm old enough to remember when there was a lot of that going on. Like, oh, don't push it too hard. You know, just, just take it easy. Uh, It sounds like she didn't buy into that uh, uh, suggestion, which is a a great thing. Um, And populism is a force in history for good and bad. And it it comes against elitism when, you know, when when people are held down and and there's this elite, there's this uh, rumbling of populism at the lower economic levels, uh, largely, and that can be used to the go to the right and the left. Was there poli- perceived elitism within the civil rights movement? Was there turf struggles? And if so, tell us about that, please, and how that may have affected her. Well, there certainly were turf struggles, and as with any movement and any political organization, anything um, going on, there's always there are always uh, factions: young versus old, well-educated versus not well-educated, men versus women, etc. And this this was part of the civil rights movement too. The NAACP was viewed as more elitist than grassroots 
organizations, um, you, you know, and things like what Hamer was doing. Even though early in her career she helped get memberships for the NAACP, it it, it didn't it didn't reflect her and her needs. Uh. And so um, she was more focused on community-based uh, advocacy. And uh-huh. some of the national leaders, like King, he was a figurehead, a national figurehead. He, while she respected him and the nonviolent status, he did not represent her and what she would view as her people, sharecroppers, poor people who struggled every day to feed themselves and clothe themselves and shelter themselves and get health care and educate themselves. He didn't represent that for her and his many of his colleagues. And even in, in King's own organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, um, they, you know, women could not rise to the top. Ella Baker, I think, was the highest in that organization, and she felt subjugated. And so it just, it was the time, you know, in our country, in our in our nation, where women did not achieve right. leadership status. And so there were always those struggles. And for Hamer, oh, the, she endured such discrimination by some of these elite civil rights men who didn't like her because she was um, uneducated or not educated very well. Mm-hmm. Um, she was poor. She wore clothing that they thought was, you know, not attractive mm. and it was borrowed or old. And she, her diction, they didn't like her diction and the way she phrased things. So they just thought she was uncouth and um, ignorant. They told her that. Mm. And that was very, very painful. On the other hand, then you have the Student Nonviolent Coordinating right. Committee, the SNCC workers like Bob Moses, yes. who elevated her, who supported her, who saw her leadership qualities, and he nurtured that. He was a remarkable, remarkable young man. Um, you know, he was 20 years younger than she was, more than 20 years younger, and he saw that light in her eyes, in her voice, and how people looked at up to her in the community. And so he helped nurture that. I mean, that's a gift, a rare gift that a young person has. But there were divisions even in SNCC that some of the young, the mostly male leaders, um, you know, rejected Hamer after a while and they wanted to move on and do their own thing. They didn't want an older woman taking the stage with them. It, it was tough, very tough. Uh, yeah, I think it was uh, Harry Truman who said, it's amazing how much you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. But egos, yeah. oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. They've done yes. so much damage through the years. And I think about, you know, the, the anti-war movement among the, you know, the largely white uh, lefty movement. Women's role was typing and getting coffee. <laughs> and that's exactly. ama- amazing what you say about when she got up on the stage, they figure, oh, well, you can sing. Yeah, right. Bob, what did Bob Moses see in her? I mean, he he was just an amazing character that a lot more people should know about. But he he saw in her something really essential and vital to the civil rights movement that other people didn't see. And 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 tell us more about what he saw in her to that was unique to developing a successful movement that he knew. And how did that affect her life? 
so he saw in her, she was, she had been a leader for a very long time. As I mentioned, though she was the last child for Jim and Ella Townsend, her mother was a strong figure. And she, and little Fannie Lou was by her side all the time. And I, I, I link Fannie Lou's development as a leader starting in that church in Ruleville where they would have the church women's meetings and they would have their own little democracy going on and electing leaders for different committees and to do food, um, you know, distribution and fundraisers. And so she learned so the basics of leadership and, and um, cooperation there. And as an adult, she was smart. You know, she may have had a sixth grade education, but there was a brilliance, a genius uh-huh. about her. And the community respected her. And she looked out for the community when she could and exacted justice when she could in her own small way. So when Bob Moses arrives and sees this woman that other people are looking up to, she's already uh-huh. a leader in the community. And her voice mattered. And it didn't matter that she wasn't a man because he looked around the landscape and who did he see but Fannie Lou Hamer who stood up. She was the first person off that bus when they went to register to vote for the first time. Everyone was afraid because all the white supremacists are driving back and forth on the street with their Confederate flags. Mm. They've got guns. And Mm. she says they look like the Beverly Hillbillies there. But she just got off the bus, walked across the street, went up the steps and in to register to vote. So he knew there's a person that... He needed to nurture because she was, in a way, somewhat fearless. And boy, she really was fearless. Um, she believed that her Amazing. faith was going to protect her. So, yeah. And and I do wonder about uh, <laughs> still to this day, strong women scare men, <laughs> men yeah, who are really. who are insecure about their positions of leadership. And you know, a lot of people killed uh you know medgar evers lots of people were killed but maybe she intimidated them i don't know it's been i don't know yeah yeah. really if it gets just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive i'm very pleased to have with us dr kate clifford larson who's got a brand new book out uh walk with me it's about uh fanny lou hamer an amazing amazing woman who's we can still learn a lot from to this day Mm. And here we are in the 2020s, the Republican Party, which is not, I, I remember when the John Birch Society was considered far right wing, huh, <laughs> mm. slightly to the left of the Republican Party these days. They're more like the KKK, except without uh, uh, the hoods on. And they're still doggedly determined to suppress the votes of African Americans. The methods are quite sophisticated now, not so in the South of the early 1960s. Tell us, please, about the impediments to voting in Hamer's world, not just for for black women, but black people in general. So as I mentioned before, you know, these literacy tests that um, they had to pass were onerous, and it was up to the judgment of the county clerk (laughs) on whether they would pass or not, because there would be illiterate white people who would take the test, not even be able to sign their name, but they would pass and be registered as voters. <laughs> yes. So that was that was insanity. I know Fannie Lou Hamer talked about, or someone down there talking about how sometimes they'd be stopped by the police and given a ticket, but they'd have to fill out the ticket themselves because the police officer sometimes was illiterate oh themselves. So, you know, how crazy is that? <laughs> um, 
So they not only had these literacy tests, they also had poll taxes that you had to pay. So sure. even if you were registered, you had to pay poll taxes for a couple of years before you were allowed to even vote. And then once you paid your poll taxes, if you had the money to pay it, that meant food out of your family's mouth mm. if you paid the poll tax. Then if you tried to vote, sometimes at the polling stations, there would be people that would prevent you from going in and voting. And there was violence, there was threats of violence, and um, it kept even people who could finally get registered to vote, it kept them away from voting. It was it was horrifying. It was really horrifying. And it, it's a lot more subtle these days, but the goal is still the same. You know, they're, they're having fewer places to vote and all kinds of uh, technically legal ways to to suppress the votes of black people, redistricting, uh, just it's happening in Texas as we speak. And it's just, it, it's surprising to me. Frankly, I was, I guess, naive. I thought back in the late 60s that we'd be in a different place in the 2020s, but there's right. still voter right. suppression. And before we get to her amazing moment in the national spotlight in 1964, tell us please about the Democratic Party in Mississippi, as, as Will Rogers said so long ago, I'm not a member of any organized party. I'm a Democrat. What was the party in Mississippi in the 1960s? How did she get involved in the party? And how was it that she rose to be a speaker at the 1964 Democratic National Convention? So in Mississippi and many of the southern states, there really was no Republican Party. It was, you know, these Dixiecrats, these southern Democrats who were, they were white supremacists. That's, they just were. That was the nature of southern Democrats. Now, Democrats in the rest of the country were not like that, but southern Democrats were. And they held the Dem National Democratic Party hostage to white supremacy because of the power of their votes in the Senate and in Congress. So for Hamer and other African Americans, there weren't really any options. There, you know, to join the Republican Party was, you know, in Mississippi was just being as disfranchised as um, they were as African Americans who couldn't vote. So they decided to challenge the Democratic Party because yes. they knew the National Party was not that white supremacist, and the National Republican Party was actually uh, racist. Uh, Barry Goldwater, who was running in 1964 against uh, Johnson, was a racist. So, um, you know, they, I think they probably felt, well, we don't have any options, but we might as well try and, and change the Democratic Party, because Johnson was promising civil rights legislation. He was making promises that it would change the world. So um, they decided to work within that party, and they formed, Hamer and her colleagues in Mississippi formed the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to challenge the right of the regular all-white Mississippi Democratic Party to represent them. And they took that challenge all the way to Atlantic City when the Democratic National Committee had its convention that August, um, where they were going to nominate uh, President Johnson mm -hmm. and Hubert Humphrey uh, for their ticket. But it was a struggle because Johnson had to negotiate with these Southern racists mm -hmm. in order to secure the nomination for himself. He was he was worried they would they would support George Wallace or um, uh, Barry Goldwater, you know, the Republican. 
so it was a struggle. And but she was determined to bring that fight, that confrontation, to the national stage, so the Democrats across the country could see that you know there were these racists who were Democrats in name only. They were not actually Democrats. They were white supremacists holding the nation back. Well, the Democratic Party uh, was the not Lincoln Republican Party. Lincoln, you know, uh, found it to be a military necessity to issue the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, and so it was the, it was up to the Democrats to uh, to with uh, to to hold up uh, racism and, and racial superiority after uh, after Lincoln, and that that was the party. How did she get involved in the Democratic Party? Was she? Elect, was she in the a county uh, caucus or something like that? I mean, what, what was... So the African-Americans um, were denied <laughs> um, entrance into those caucus meetings in Mississippi when the white um, uh, precincts had their precinct elections for delegates to send to um, Atlantic City, and they would, like, switch the location, just like, you know, switching locations today. So some of the tactics Uh they're using today were the same in Mississippi back then. Uh And so um, no African-Americans, even those that were registered and could vote, were locked out of those precinct meetings to, to vote or become part of that process. So the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party had their own mock elections. 80,000 people came out and voted in these mock elections to elect delegates, starting at the precinct level and the state level, et cetera, to send delegates to the convention in Atlantic City in 1964. And Hamer was one of them that organized that. She ran and she was elected as one of the delegates and and was part of a group of more than 60 that went to uh, Atlantic City to demand that they be seated on the floor of the convention and vote for the presidential nominee and to insist that the all-white Mississippi delegation be refused seats. Boy, I vaguely remember that. I was 13 at the time. And tell us about what the brouhaha was like at the convention before I actually play the clip of of the moment she electrified the nation. So uh, the Mississippi regular party is furious because they just, you know, they're so racist. They hate these African-Americans challenging them and um, and their power, and they were very angry. President Johnson, on the other hand, he was also freaking out because he wanted the votes of those, not only Mississippi, but Alabama and Texas and Louisiana, who were all threatening that they would not vote for him. So, um, especially Alabama. Alabama was really bad under the leadership of George Wallace. Oh, yeah. So um, it was it was a tense kind of convention that was building up. Although there were there were delegates, Democratic delegates from around the country that were all in favor of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Ah. So there was support, but the challenge had to go before the Democratic Credentials Committee, and um, they would take testimony from Hamer and her group and supporters, and also from the regular Mississippi Democratic All White Party. So it was a tense kind of standoff. And while Dr. Martin Luther King spoke and Aaron Henry from Mississippi and these other activists from Mississippi spoke, it was Hamer's speech, that sharecropper's daughter with a sixth grade education that spoke, that riveted the nation. It just changed everything. All right. Here is that little clip. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, 
I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? Thank you. What the president did at that point is incredible. The president of the United States. Please share that story with listeners. So as Hamer is speaking, NBC News is there, and they're taping all of the testimony, and it's streaming live across the country all day long. And President Johnson is at the White House waiting for his time and a few days to go to the convention, and he's watching this on TV. He sees and hears Hamer, and he realizes uh-oh, this is so powerful, uh, this is going to cause problems. You know, I don't want the Mississippi all-white delegation to walk out. This is too dangerous. So he calls a press conference right in the middle of her speech, and everybody rushes to the, the podium, the press room at the White House, and NBC cuts away from her speech to cover the president. And he says, I want to remind everybody today that nine months ago, on this day, President Kennedy was assassinated, and Governor John Connolly was injured, and he said a few words, three minutes, and then he ended and he walked away from the podium. Just enough time so that Hamer was finished her speech when NBC News went back to the convention credentials uh, meeting. And um, it was shocking. But what he didn't bank on was that NBC (laughs) had cameras in the room still taping her, and they broadcast it that night in a recap of events of the day, and the whole nation watched Fannie Lou Hamer that sharecropper speak to Americans, and she really won some hearts and changed the world. Yeah, Lyndon Johnson was a unique character, shall we say. He called himself an SOB, and it fit. (laughs) Absolutely amazing character. And you talk about, I mean, you know, one thinks about winning and losing. Sometimes you can lose a battle and win the war, or the opposite. What was the outcome of the freedom delegation struggle in 1964 and then at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. So um, the MFDP fought for to be seated and they could not negotiate that. Humphrey did the negotiating for Johnson and the Democratic Party. They ended up, the MFDP got two non-voting seats on the floor, which infuriated (laughs) Hamer. But they did exact some promises from Johnson. He was going to sign some very important civil rights legislation, including the 1964, uh, 1965 um, voting rights legislation that matters to us today because it was all about securing voting rights. And um, we still look back on that and are trying to hang on to that 1965 Voting Rights Act to help with voting rights today. And then also um, they exacted a promise from the Democratic Party that all future conventions, all state delegations had to be diverse not only by race, but also gender. And so Fannie Lou Hamer and her colleagues did make a difference. Although to Hamer, she felt betrayed. She was angry. It really, it it upset her tremendously. She felt that she hadn't done enough, but it it was huge, huge changes uh, in the country as a result of it. And ironically, the Mississippi delegation walked out and they would not take their seats ultimately. And they voted for, um, 
individually, they all went and voted for uh, Goldwater. Oh, my goodness. So even though, because there were two non-voting delegates, the rest of the white racist delegation couldn't even handle that? They couldn't even handle that because they knew that the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party had had a national moment and they were angry and ticked off. And they didn't like Johnson anyway. They knew he was going to sign, do this voting rights legislation, and they were going to do everything possible. And that was the moment where many of those southern states switched to the the Republican Party. It was the full-on, just totally changed. Yeah. yeah, that happened from 1965. It was never the same since. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Some of us really like democracy for everybody, all citizens. And our guest today is Dr. Kate Clifford Larson, whose brand new book is Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer. And that uh, Voting Rights Act is certainly still in the news. It, it, it was, you know, it's been fighting against it by the Republican Party. And the title of the book, Walk With Me, why and in what ways did she personify America's founder's intention for what citizenship meant? So, you know, in the Declaration of Independence, it says all men and women are created equal. And she believed that and she wanted the nation to walk with her just as she believed deeply that God walked with her, helped her survive tremendous violence and poverty and discrimination. She wanted the nation to walk with her and, and be together and move civil rights and equality and justice and, and access to everything equal access to everything with her. And many people did. Her voice was so powerful. She influenced so many young people and older people who changed their minds. They began to see and understand because she represented a world that they did not recognize, that they didn't know existed. She brought that out into the open. And um, so Walk With Me is so important. And it's part of a song that she sang in the Winona um, jail, Winona, Mississippi jail, when she had been arrested in 1963 and brutally beaten and uh, raped. And uh, she sang that song uh, to give her strength to survive the four uh, days she was in that jail. It's called Walk With Me, Lord. So the title of the book is uh, very personal about her, but also her message to America, Walk With Me. I, can't, I just can't imagine that. But boy, she had amazing strength. Terribly mm-hmm. inspirational to us today. And, you know, the Klan is basically gone. It's, uh, But the intent to suppress black people's equal rights remains with us. There was the Charlottesville, uh, the killing of George Floyd, January 6th, the loud white supremacist movement, racism against refugees of color. But today there's also the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and I like the what-ifs in history. A lot of people don't. <laughs> How do you think she would have reacted to America electing Donald Trump? Now, in the hopeful days of the 1960s, I never would have imagined this would be what the 21st century would like. The whole uh, Make America Great Again movement, which is, of course, you know, returning white male dominance. What does this say? about where we find ourselves and how far we have yet to go to reach Fannie Lou Hamer's vision of America. Does her work offer us here today a still useful roadmap? 
Oh, absolutely. First of all, I think she probably would not be surprised at the election of Donald Trump. She would have recognized that um, even though this great country elected Barack Obama, she would have recognized that it was we were not in a post-racial world, that those those Klan members, those white supremacists were still there, always there. They're still, you know, they were going to continue to fight and muck things up. She knew it. She was there on the ground and she would recognize that it was just a matter of time before that backlash mm. would happen. Mm. And, um, you know, you say that the, the Klan is, you know, not really around. Actually, they don't call themselves the Klan. Everybody's just taking their hoods off. And right. it, the the rhetoric that some of these right wing people are using now is the same rhetoric that they used against civil rights activists, communists, socialists. You know, they're radicals. They're this. They're that. They're going to take our country away from us. You know, it's the same playbook. And she would recognize it, and she would say, "Stand up, fight. You have to fight. You have to do this because we have everything to lose." Stand up and fight. And I can see those uh, white racists in Charlottesville, you know, we will not be replaced, basically. Mm. And, and mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's amazing to me. But, you know, there's, there's a, a price we pay for refusing to learn from history. Now, here we are in, in almost 2022, and we have Joe Biden as president, who, frankly, I think, recognizes that that it was uh, African-Americans who really made the difference in him at least getting the nomination. Uh, and so we have the Build Back Better agenda, which is universal preschool, mm-hmm. voter access, make the wealthiest pay their fair share. Uh, maybe I'm, again, too optimistic, but it seems to kind of fit her agenda. Would this be a real victory that she would see as a victory if it does become enacted, which is still, who knows? Right. So she would view it as a victory if it's enacted, but these were the same things, universal preschool education, health care, educate, you know, uh, voting rights, housing, foods insecurity, addressing all those issues, uh, equal pay or better pay and things like that. She would see those as things she'd been fighting for since the 1960. And Biden's agenda is very similar to Johnson's Great Society dreams that were not fulfilled. And here we are, 60 years later, still trying trying to fulfill that promise that Johnson kind of laid out, but the war and everything got in the way. It's time to pass those things and bring those jobs and that equality and access to everybody. So if you were talking to young people these days who they don't have, frankly, the best in American history education, what what should they know? You know, because they have I hate to say this and to to generalize, but kind of short attention spans, largely from, you know, the uh, social media and all that stuff. Who was Fannie Lou Hamer and why why is she worth uh, keeping in in a pantheon of great leaders of America? Well, Fannie Lou Hamer was an ordinary person like most of us who yes. lived in a very difficult circumstances. But through her, her, the love of her family and her community, her faith, and her desire for equality and justice, and um, that freedom that she just needed so badly, she stood up and she faced down her oppressors. And she survived. And she didn't have many tools. And we can 
take lessons from that. If we learn about her, how did she do that? And if we can't all be Fannie Lou Hamers, we should find those Fannie Lou Hamers in our communities, yeah. whether they're 20 years old or 70 years old. Find them in our communities and support them because they need support. They cannot do it alone and, um, and share in that power and move the needle. That's what happened to her. And she influenced several generations of young, particularly African-American women and other, you know, African-American men and white young and old people to move forward and to go out in the world and make a difference. There were so many that went out and did different things, whether they became lawyers and, and um, doctors and sociologists and business leaders, they were affected by her so that they could make change in their own space in their own world. So young people today, middle-aged, older people, we can all do the same thing. Start with learning about Fannie Lou Hamer and see yourselves in that story and move forward in your community. Fantastic. And I have to say, the, the cover of the book, the, the photograph of her, it's it's powerful. I mean, I, I, I don't know how you found that, but it's like, you look at this person and I don't know, it's like, if I saw her somewhere, I'd be like, whoa, she's got some power. <laughs> <laughs> Just some personal exactly. power. The book is Walk With Me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer. It's put out on Oxford University Press. Kate Clifford Larson, thanks so much for telling us about this incredibly inspirational American. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And here you can get a sense of the power of Fannie Lou Hamer. <laughs> 